Hi, everybody, and welcome to the March 10th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dazzini. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the decision by a federal court judge last week that granted class action status to a lawsuit in Colorado. The suit claims that undocumented immigrants held in a privately run Colorado detention center were threatened with solitary confinement and paid a dollar a day for labor. Patty Cahoon from Westward, uh, this seems to put uh, a pretty big immigration issue in a lawsuit right smack dab in the middle of Colorado that the rest of the nation's be paying attention to. What do you think? Well, they will be paying attention to it, and for good reason. The fact is, even if you are undocumented or illegal, whatever you want to call them, you do, that does not give the United States, via its private company, the opportunity to use you as slave labor. So it's going to be a fascinating case. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, explain to uh, me and our viewers about what it means to have class action status. Well, and the, this decision came from Judge John Kane, who's a senior federal district judge, very well respected, great career in Colorado law. A class action is when it's more manageable and more convenient for everybody to try the claims of several representatives of the class instead of all the individuals in the class one at a time. And so that, that's what Judge Kane decided, that this is a good case for a class action. And that's all it decides at this point. The proving the allegations, all that kind of stuff, that may come in the future. Now, whether illegal aliens who have been caught and being, being held in a federal detention facility are within the scope of the federal statute called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. You know, they're not trafficking victims. They're, they're self-trafficking perpetrators. Uh, so I, I don't know how it's going to end up as a matter of law, but I think Judge Kane was right to say however we do it, it's going to be easier to do it as a class action. Eric Sonnen, political analyst. Immigration is already a nuclear topic in, in America, but I imagine that this is going to put Colorado in some of those national discussions. Do you share the same thought? Yeah, I think Colorado's ready there. I think David actually understated uh, the influence of this particular judge. I mean, when you look back at federal judges who've made a difference in this state, in this part of the country over a long period of time, John Cain is on the top of that list. He now has senior status, but it didn't surprise me at all to read that he was the judge at the center of this and the judge uh, who issued this ruling. I think the solitary confinement piece might be a little overstated. There's no evidence that anyone, any of these detainees, have been put into solitary confinement. But my favorite piece of it was uh, somebody for the private company running these detention centers uh, who talked about where in my notes uh, that they called it a quote volunteer voluntary work program. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it's quite voluntary. Uh, I tend to be suspicious of some class action suits. I think this one might have some legs and uh, more power to them. Ben Gilt joins us, public affairs consultant. Uh, even though we talked about the impact of this from the national point of view, we have a lot of immigration points on the local issues, whether it's sanctuary cities or different cities deciding what they're going to do. Do you think this case might impact some of those decisions? Well, I think certainly from a perception level, the, this kind of ruling gives some energy and some maybe stability or some sense of uh, peace to those folks in, in uh, those communities about their status in our society and, and their ability to be unfairly treated and, and the like. So um, I think certainly from that perspective of a, just a PR level, that it should be a positive for folks who are concerned about their rights and their ability to be treated humanely. 
Both Senator Cory Gardner and Representative Ken Buck announced this week that they do not support the current draft of the Affordable Care Act reform effort. Each cited the need for more time to develop the plan and avoid major cuts to the Medicaid program. Patty, uh, right from the start, now we've heard from other critics nationally, but Colorado, with two pretty vocal critics, do you think the criticism we've heard from both Senator Gardner and Representative Buck will last? Well, I think we're going to hear more from them and probably more from many other um, senators and representatives. You know, this was just finalized and introduced Monday night, and since then, the amount of arm twisting and, you know, um, back padding and everything that's going on, I'll be surprised if by the time this show airs, people haven't been sent off to the hospital to take advantage of their special congressional medical care. Because we are looking at a proposal right now that could shut out between 16 million and 20 million Americans. No one who's running for re-election in two years, or arguably anyone who's humanitarian, would want that to happen. So there's some really significant problems to the bill as it currently exists. And it is morphing even as we sit here. but. Uh, Rachel Maddow was already giving the people who protested Cory Gardner's non-appearances at town halls credit for changing his vote. On the other hand, Ken Buck did go to town halls, and both of them were able to find problems with this bill as it currently exists. David, we've seen congressional Republicans handle this in a couple different ways. One, there seems to be a lot of pressure to get as much done right now. We need eight years to do this, to uh, repeal Obamacare. We've got to move right now. What's the plan? But then it seems that there are more questions coming up and one of the major criticisms of Obamacare was that it was passed before people could read it so it's like maybe we should actually analyze this if you were advising congressional Republicans should they take their time and really hash everything out or is it more important to get some action even if it's just a piece of it sooner than later well it's never important to rush just for the sake of doing something to say you've done something because then you often end up doing something stupid um, on this particular thing this Medicaid expansion is not financially sustainable. Uh, as Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his opinion in, in, in this case, it was a Medicaid used to be for people who were, were indigent uh, or you know disabled with, for some reason. Uh, and this was a huge expansion to able-bodied working able-bodied adults. The federal deficit shows this can't go on. We can't even pay for the exit you know. Old the, the pre-Obamacare uh, welfare state that, that exists, uh, let alone the, the, this huge thing. So something's got to change. The proposal uh, in states like Colorado, where you had an irresponsible chief executive unilaterally do this whole expansion, a uh, gigantic expansion of the state government without even asking the legislature, uh, the proposal winds it down by saying we're not the people who are on Medicaid now. We're not going to kick you off but we're going to be increasingly limiting about new Medicaid enrollments, and I think that's a, a reasonable phase-out. Eric, it, it seems to me that a process can be as important as the details, and I think when we look back at 2010, some of the criticisms came out of not only the details of Obamacare, but how it came to be, the process. What are the important lessons for Republicans to learn from that as they go through the process right now, whether it's town halls or change the law? What, what do they need to remember about the process? Thanks for that setup, Dominic, because that's exactly where I was going. I think one takeaway from the passage of Obamacare in 2010 is the dangers of having only one party invested in it. I, it, is the, it was at the time the first major entitlement that was passed without any remote 
spirit of bipartisanship. We're now seeing the exact inverse of that, and we're seeing the same dangers. Now, maybe it's just a symptom of the polarized country we're living in, that that's the way things are, and that's the way things will be, and you couldn't get a Republican to participate in Obamacare, and you can't find a Democrat to participate in its repeal and revision, et cetera. But there is danger. There was danger in that, and Democrats paid a very, very hefty political price for it over several election cycles, and I'd suggest there's danger in this as well. I find Cory Gardner and Ken Buck to be an interesting duo on this one. Ken Buck has been a Trump loyalist once Trump became the apparent nominee and sits on as safe a Republican district as you can find. So he does not, he has really nothing at stake here. So obviously he has some concerns about the practicality of this. Cory Gardner, fortunately for him, is not up for election in 2018, so he's not feeling the immediate heat. Yes, he represents a purple to slightly bluer state, and the re-election is then starting to loom in 2020. Gardner's become who has been not a never-Trumper, but pretty close to it, and uh, you know, very slow to embrace this president, uh, has become an interesting figure not only on this issue, but on other issues in Washington. I don't know how, I don't think any of us know what the resolution of this is going to be. Uh, David is right about rushing these things and the dangers of excessive partisanship. We see it time and time again, and neither party really seems to learn that lesson. Ben, let's look at the political ramifications for uh, Gardner. If he's come out now as a critic, but eventually some changes happen to the, to the bill, and then he eventually votes for it, does he lose the credit for being an early critic, or can he ride that balance beam uh, in the years ahead as I was a critic and a supporter? <laughs> Well, I think if there's one Colorado Politico that has shown he is able to actually be on both sides of an issue literally at the same time and make claims that say, yes, I am, and no, I'm not, depending on what day of the week and what audience, it's Cory Gardner. So um, I suspect that if there is a successful triangulation strategy there that he will find it. I think he's banking on people continuing to be frustrated and, frankly, uh, continuing to be very comfortable with his affect and his million-dollar smile. So um, I do think that what you're seeing from Gardner is some concern and, and finding ways to both support the administration with some of their economic policies and stand up and say no so that I think he can point to collaboration and um, uh, a voice of, of dissent as he goes into re-election, probably starting in 19. Colorado Speaker of the House Crisanta Duran and State Senate President Kevin Grantham announced the transportation funding bill this week that will ask for $3.5 billion from taxpayers to pay for highway improvements. The bill is already running into significant criticism from conservatives, including the highest-ranking Republican in the State House. David, very simply, is this thing dead mm -hmm. on arrival? Yes, and I think, uh, as, as a lot of the reporting has said, uh, the, uh, President Grantham didn't get much, if any, buy-in from the Republican caucus, and there's going to be a lot of opposition, as as there should. Uh, first of all, there's there's no fiscal restraint in this bill. There's we before raising taxes, uh, we ought to be first cutting some spending, particularly on wealth on Colorado's notorious welfare recipients like Quentin Tarantino, who got over four million bucks to film a movie, The Hateful Eight. Uh, 
that was filmed in Colorado on, on Colorado welfare, and yet is set in Wyoming. But David, and, that four million dollars is going to buy like a couple lane stripes on I twenty five. That, I mean, that, that's just a starting point. Then, then we've got the, the the welfare for people who buy luxury electric cars, and then there's really when you add it all up, the hundreds of millions of dollars that the legislature spends on corporate welfare altogether in its many, many phases. Secondly, US 36, the great successful project there, shows there's lots of roads where we can add capacity without any taxes on the general public. You do it through adding uh, high occupancy toll and high occupancy vehicle lanes. Uh, and so the highway users pay for it and that, that's the right way to do it. The people who want a better highway, they pay for it directly. They get a, get a better highway. That could be done in lots of places. Third, of all this huge money that's going to be raised, only about half of it goes to the state Colorado Department of Transportation for other highway construction. A whole bunch of the rest goes to cities and counties. Well, cities and counties, they know their own transportation needs best. They can ask their voters for whatever tax increases they want within the city and county for those particular roads and that would be much better focused because then the voters could say oh if taxes go up this much this particular road is going to get fixed or expanded or whatever and a lot of the rest goes to a new state bureaucracy which has to spend at least 25 percent of its money not on improving roads but on things like uh... for pedestrians and uh... for people in wheelchairs which is certainly an important thing to do but we ought to have a state government that can build sidewalks and paths out of current revenue rather than borrowing for 20 years uh, to build things like that. Eric, if uh, Republicans, whether it's in the, uh, imagine the Senate, they, really, they hold some sway, uh, do end up killing this bill on arrival or wherever it's going to uh, be in the process, can Democrats later use their own obstinance against them, saying, hey, we tried to fix transportation, which I think across the board Colorado's are concerned <laughs> about. Is that a risky maneuver by Republicans? Oh, it's risky all around, and yes, there can be political recrimination, but I think that's for another day down the road. I'm going to disagree with David. This thing is not DOA. It might be in jeopardy. It may have some serious, uh, I don't think it's even on life support. It may have some serious uh, issues, but it is not DOA for a simple reason. You have the Senate president, a Republican, and in 1817, uh, a Senate. You have Republican Senate sponsors of this. Obviously, this bill will start in the House, which is easier sailing Democratic House. Uh, and the House needs to be careful not to Christmas tree it up with a lot of stuff that is attractive to Democratic constituencies, too much bike lanes and transit and whatever to, to make it more attractive to folks in Boulder and Denver and whatever, because that makes it easier for the Senate to kill it. But if the Duran and Grantham compromise can maintain some integrity, it then has a chance in the Senate because there are enough Senate Republicans combined who, who could vote for it combined with the lion's share if not the entirety of the Democratic caucus in the Senate. There are two huge obstacles here. One is getting it through this legislative sausage making process as, as I've discussed. Secondly is then getting it past the voters come November. Voters there's no there can't be any argument that the state has huge transportation and road needs but there probably isn't a whole lot of argument either that the state had some significant education needs. And last time we went with Amendment 66, we saw that that got a solid one-third or slightly over one-third of the vote. Uh, Republicans, I mean, you have to harken back to Referendum C in 2005, long time ago now, passed narrowly. 
You had a Republican governor in his final year doing the courageous thing and endorsing this. It is hard to find high-profile Republicans with ambitions who are going to tackle that anti-tax, the, the, the strident anti-tax people in that party and, and embrace something like this. So I think it has a challenges in the legislature, but perhaps even bigger challenges come November. Ben, I, I think we talked about transportation as an issue is important across the board, Republican, Democrat, wherever you're at politically in Colorado, but tax hikes are not. Is there a way to sell this thing that can garner some more public support that might actually put some external pressure on some Republicans who would otherwise be completely against any sort of tax hike? Well, I think there are, and I think you don't have to look too much further than, uh, you know, daily newspapers and, and community newspapers that gripe about traffic issues. Um, traffic is a, is a huge concern for residents all around the metro area. There are significant road projects underway also all around the metro area. And you, and you actually have some key members of uh, the Republican caucus in both the House and the Senate, um, frankly, screaming bloody murder about the condition of I-25 in particular and the ability to move up and down the front range. So I think that there already is a lot of public pressure to address um, traffic and congestion and the condition of roads. So I think um, to that degree, a lot of Republican legislatures might find more of a perch for this issue than you might typically expect. I think a lot of folks in Colorado understand how fast we're growing, and all of us sit on the road and all of us see rush hour traffic. So I don't think um, that the that the T typical way that these tax issues line up will necessarily come into play here. I think that it will be critical, critical for Republican legislators to really dr make that drumbeat loud so that they uh, have a strong constituent presence saying we need to do something about this problem. So I think there should be more cover here than maybe you would find for education or health care or other issues. Patty, I don't remember all the funny mechanisms with the T-Rex project, but I remember that just being a monster and aptly named. But it turned out pretty darn well. Uh, do you think there's a potential to bring back some of that success, possibly for something like this? It's possible. I mean, Ben's right. There is nothing that gets people more irate in Colorado. Uh, native versus newcomer, I would say, is number one. Number mm -hmm. two is absolutely traffic, but not just traffic. It's the state of the roads you're stuck on, and you have so much time to look and see how bad they are. The potholes, the lack of curbs, the, they're just a mess. So I think there is some public will to, with, for the right measure, they might go for it. This is way too overreaching right now. Uh, it makes you kind of think of the health care bill going through in Congress. Just too vague, too much. But I think if the legislators really dial down, focus in, it's possible that we'd get something through this year. In a 23 to 12 vote, the Colorado Senate pushed through a long-debated construction defects reform bill on Tuesday. Senate Bill 156 would redirect deficient workmanship claims over condominiums into arbitration versus the courts. The measure also requires the majority of homeowners impacted by a dispute to agree to file a claim as a group. Eric, we've been teased by the progress of a construction defects bill for many legislatures. Is this the one that finally gets to the finish line? Could be. This is a different legislative session. You know, it was only a year ago you had Speaker Dickie Lee Hullinghorst, Senate President Bill Cadman, 
they're both gone. You now have Kevin Grantham and Crisanta Duran. They both pride themselves on being deal makers. Mm -hmm. Maybe they read Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. Who knows? But uh, they, they, they want to carve out a different persona for each of them and a different reputation. And they're on the way to doing that. We'll see sessions only you know halfway through. And obviously, the second half is always much, much tougher and more consequential than the first half. But um, this thing could happen. Uh, the, Obviously, the, the Senate, inverse to the previous issue, the Senate is easy here. The House is harder because that's where the Democrats are, Democrats being uh, so aligned with the trial law industry, which is where this thing has typically died because of the interests of the trial law industry here. But this issue has been stuck for so long, and I think there is a prospect that this particular bill is the answer, or at least a partial answer, an introductory answer to it, and I think it does have some legs. Ben, has the fact that a lot of cities have tried to address the problem themselves, do you think that has pushed the legislature to hopefully more progress on this issue? I think it has. You've seen a handful of cities try to address this issue through their councils or through their um, uh, county boards or county commissioners. I, I think um, what's really interesting about this issue is, for one thing, there are not that many um, examples of, of cases gone to trial around this issue. Um, and there's a lot of belief, uh, certainly uh, particularly from the, from the Democratic side, that there is no uh, legislative panacea to address this issue. So whether this bill passes or not, I think the thing that I'll really be curious to see is if it has any effect whatsoever. I, I'm dubious, personally. Patty, does this bill get to Governor Hickelooper? I'll give it a 50-50 chance this time. And Ben's also right on the fact that there are some real problems that we've seen in construction, and the, the homeowners certainly have a right to complain. And we, But I think right now what's happening is all the legislators who are driving into downtown Denver, just the same way we drive up to 29th and Welton, and you see the huge apartment complexes that are going in, allegedly because they can't afford to build places that people could buy and live in. That is influencing the legislators. What you really hope is if this bill passes, people who buy a lemon still get a chance to squeeze the developer. Right. David, should this get to Governor Hickelberg? Yes, because it preserves the ability of someone who gets a, buys the lemon to sue individually or, or to bring a, 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 to address that. But what it changes is you can't have just a few people in, a, in an area say we're going to do a, a suit on behalf of everyone without asking the majority of people on behalf of whom you're allegedly suing to approve that. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week, and as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. I'm going to go with our new EPA director, Pruitt, who has some issues on is climate change really happening? Can't wait till he comes out to balmy Colorado, which is going to be, what, 65 this weekend, and goes and visits, visits the Summitville mine. If we want people who want to be made whole from what happened with the EPA actions up there, might be waiting a really long time under this EPA director. I just hope it doesn't turn into a casino. Uh, David, your disgrace of the week. Colorado's Associated Press for continuing to use a reporter who writes about law but uh, doesn't know anything about it and never checks with anyone who does. Her story for today uh, tells us that Colorado is in violation of federal drug law for not making it a crime to smoke pot. 
which of course is false. There's nothing in federal law that says that or, or could under our Constitution. And she also claims U.S. Attorney Jeff Sessions uh, has said that states should not be able to legalize pot. To the contrary, General Sessions' uh, recent speech said, of course, states can legalize pot if they want to. He thinks that's a bad idea. And he also points out accurately that whatever the state does doesn't change what the federal law is. Eric. Well, those sensitive souls at Middlebury College uh, who became thugs and Middlebury became the latest and worst incident, uh, instance of the repression of free speech that is all too prevalent on all too many college campuses these days. And this one, in this case, was accompanied by violence. A professor was injured. Uh, whoa. What has become of academia, or at least the academia that many of us knew as a place of intellectual inquiry, is truly sad and disturbing. Ben. Big surprise, I'm sure. I'm going to choose Mayor Hancock. Um, he has a Vision Zero initiative, which is intended to eliminate uh, pedestrian and traffic deaths. And on his own website, he's underreporting the fatalities in the city of Denver by over 50 percent, which is kind of a joke. He invited the national executive director of, of uh, Vision Zero to Denver for his own summit, which he barely attended and was uh, given very little attention. Um, so. I think a more appropriate name for the plan here in Denver would be Zero Vision. I can't imagine you making the Christmas card list this year, but that's no, no. okay, Ben. That's not right. your goal. Say something nice about somebody, the hardest part of the show. Patty. We'll return to pot, and we're not talking potholes in this case. It looks like finally the legislature will approve PTSD as one of the, um, one of the things people are suffering from that will qualify for medical marijuana. It's about time. David. Well, to defend Mayor Hancock after his predecessor eliminated homelessness, which was his plan, uh, the mayor needed something to do. Uh, but uh, the DU Pioneers hockey team, number one in the nation at the end of the regular season. They're here. Yeah. Eric. Ernie Bjorkman, longtime anchor at Channel 2, disappeared from this community about eight years ago. They're bringing him back. I think Ed Sardella and Bill Stewart still have a curtain call left in them. Sounds good to me. Ben. And we totally eliminated that homeless problem. Um, nice thing to say. How about Albertine Sellers? 60 years That's at good. the city of Denver. She takes RTD uh, into work every day, and she's just an incredible woman. So thank you for your service. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. We are in the thick of our spring pledge drive this weekend, and we have a new way that you can show your support. If you use hashtag donate, it's a new program that we have that allows you to show your support for programs just like this in a whole new way. Check it out on Facebook and Twitter. All you have to do is put hashtag donate and then an amount you want to donate. A couple of clicks and it's there. It's an easy way to do it, an easy way to make sure that programs like this, Colorado Inside Out Now in its 25th season, can remain around. As always, be sure to check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play and the show segments on all of our social media pages. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.